Episode number six of Off the Shelf, a podcast that looks at what it means to be a true follower of Jesus in the context of Scripture and the message of William Branham. With me is my co-host, Rod Bergen. Happy to be here. Rod, we have some very special guests with us today, and I'm going to kick it over to you and let you introduce them to our audience. Thanks, Brian. Joining us on this edition of Off the Shelf are Joe and Anna Baroni. They are the authors of the searchingforvindication.com website. If you're not familiar with their website, they've done extensive research into the Municipal Bridge Vision and many other aspects of the message. They've got a timeline of William Branham's life, complete with documents, that is a valuable resource for anyone doing research on William Branham and the message. Joe and Anna responded to Believe the Signs Call, an attempt to produce evidence in support of the message. They found much more than they ever intended to when they began the search. Joe and Anna, welcome to Off the Shelf. Oh, thanks for having us here today on your podcast, Rod and Brian. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you. I am really excited for this new approach you're taking with Off the Shelf, and I think it's such an applicable name. I love it. We're going to talk about the origins of the Searching for Vindication website, but first, I'm sure that our listeners would be interested in learning a bit about your backgrounds. How did each of you come into the message? Well, Rod, uh, my family came into the message when I was about 12 years old, and then I was baptized a few years later at Branham Tabernacle in Jeffersonville over Easter weekend of all times. It was a very exciting uh, time for me. And then most of my message years were actually spent in a small church in Minnesota. Um, After we got married, my job had me move in quite a bit. And so we had the opportunity to attend churches across a number of different areas of the U.S. And there were times when we didn't really have a local church option. So when we found ourselves in that situation. We would stream services from Cloverdale Bible Way or from uh, Believers uh, Christian Fellowship in Lima, Ohio. Uh, We'd listen to tapes. We'd have devotions in our home. So, you know, we lived the message and upheld its standards uh, in spite of the fact that we did stand alone for a number of years at a time. I myself was born and raised in the message. Um, I grew up in a very small home church. And when I say small, my family made up about half of it. And there were only five of us. (laughs) And uh, that was in central Indiana. I gave my heart to the Lord at a very young age. I was about six. And I was baptized right after that. And I know that a lot of times people think that's too young. But, you know, it was a very real experience for me as a child. Joe and I, we now live in Minnesota with our three daughters. And this year we'll celebrate 18 years of marriage together. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And we just had Pastor Jeff Jenkins on, who's the former pastor at uh, Believers uh, Christian Fellowship in Lyme, Ohio. I'm sure our listeners by now have had the opportunity to listen to uh, that interview. Joe and Anna, it's common for people that are still in the message to say of people that have left, they never really believe the message. How would you describe your belief in the message? Did you really believe? Well, I really feel that our approach to our publication and our dedication to not only search for but prove the truth is actually a testament to our faith in the message. We never doubted it was anything but true. As you know, Rod and Brian, we were we were approaching this as believers defending our faith. We never considered for a moment that we wouldn't find documentation. What we didn't consider was that our discoveries would further harm, harm the message rather than defend it. Um, my faith kind of took a great shift in the course of our research. I began to see that there was a man standing between me and my Savior. And... Um, 
for me, that was, it just became very wrong. In the end, my faith never wavered. It just anchored in Jesus Christ and the Bible rather than the message doctrines and its prophet. And I say that because so many do claim we didn't believe it. And they attempt to disregard our relationship with Christ in the process. And nothing could be further from the truth. We stood for our faith, willing to forsake all. And we did. And to be standing even still, that is an undeniable faith. Um, and, And the reality is we really lived it at public uh, you know, out, out in front of people and at home. And I know a lot of our former friends and family members have a hard time reconciling things because of our walk, right? Because of who we were. We were the people that a lot of them called when they were sick or they needed help or advice because we did have an exemplary uh, testimony amongst our peers. And looking back, we can really identify with Paul in Philippians 3 when he says that, when he's talking about his former faith uh, before he became a Christian, and he talks about himself being a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. And that's how we felt about how we were in the message, right? We lived it. It wasn't a burden to us. Um, you know, we th- thought we were being obedient to God and, and to the word, and we're just joyful about living. And, you know, it was it was a real thing to us. And we, you know, we just, it's just who we were. And, and I can appreciate that. I think we were all in the same uh, condition. We we're all in the same boat, trying to live as best we could what we thought was the truth. And I remember getting a phone call from you, Joe, sometime after we published our article on the Municipal Bridge, which would have been back in uh, August 2012. I think you called me a couple months after we published the article, probably in October. And you told me that it was your intention to prove us wrong. And my response was was sincere that I didn't want to publish anything that was inaccurate and that if you could prove us wrong, then I wanted to know what the truth was. And we still maintain that attitude. In fact, my most common reply to emails that say that we are wrong is to invite them to refute all of our research and the conclusions that we've arrived at from that research. What went through your mind when you read the article on the Municipal Bridge, and what was your motivation for calling me? Well, uh, Rod, as we read through everything you published on Believe the Sign and listened to all your videos, or watched them rather, the Bridge Vision seemed to be a really big hang-up for, for you. And as I looked at the evidence, I felt like there was more resources than maybe you even knew about that could be looked into. And that was, at, at the time, that was probably true, because of the, as I'd said earlier, I had looked at a bunch of evidence, couldn't find anything, and then I talked to Perry Green and George Smith and ended up, based on what they said, realizing that it never happened. So I just downed tools at the time, and we wrote our article on that basis. Yep. So at the same time, though, you know, I also saw the response from Voice of God Recordings. They published an article in their Catch the Vision pamphlet or magazine, I'm not sure what you call that. Uh, it was also in 2012, so it was right after, I, th- I believe you guys had published your videos or some sometime there in the interim. And they claimed that there weren't any records of any deaths on the bridge because it wouldn't have been big news in that era and that all the newspaper archives were destroyed in the 1937 flood in the Ohio River Valley. And that really didn't sit well with me. So let me, let me tell you a little story here. So when I was growing up, my dad had a friend in northern Minnesota, and we went to visit him. It was in the middle of winter, and it was terribly cold, and there wasn't a lot for the kids to do, right? So it turns out that he had this big collection of microfiche. And you ask, what's this guy doing with the microfiche library in his house, right? Well, he had bought it secondhand from a library that was upgrading to better equipment and a newer format of microfiche. And so he had this huge collection in his house, and it was all of the newspapers from the American colonies. 
And I spent that whole weekend up there just pouring over these things, right? These treasures of history. And I was just amazed at how all this history was preserved. And I really got a lesson while I was there about how archiving worked and how our history is preserved. And it was a great experience. He was a big history buff and he he kind of filled me in on how this stuff works. And so you see the way it works here in the U.S. is that many libraries and national archives subscribe to newspapers and they keep copies of them. And of course, back in the day, they used to be in paper format and they were just kept and warehoused that way. But later, uh, a lot of those were converted to microfiche. And now that's all digitized, of course. Thanks, Joe. And I, I do think it's important to highlight for our listeners in the Catch the Vision magazine, I think it was volume, volume two in 2012, and it was entitled Because He Said So. Voice of God led a whole bunch of people to believe that the 1937 flood had destroyed a large number of historical documents in the Ohio River Value, which included thousands of newspaper archives. And as a result of that, our research couldn't be trusted because we didn't have real data to back it up. Yeah, that's right. And despite what Voice of God claimed, I knew the records were there, right? And it's not like we depend on one library or one archive to preserve these things. The system or the way that we manage these things is designed to preserve them in the event of disasters just like that. And so I knew that there were libraries that had to have copies of these um, outside of the Jeffersonville area. And so I had a lead on where I could find those. I had, I had done some digging online and figured that out. And I also had found online a reference to an official report that the architects of the bridge made to the local bridge commission at the end of the project. And of course, later on through the course of our research, we learned about all sorts of other things that were also available. So really, uh, in essence, what I was trying to do with that phone call is find out if you had looked at all this stuff or not. And we'd already decided between Anna and myself that if you hadn't done that, we were going to go do it. We knew that the evidence was there to vindicate the message. And all we had to do was go get it. And so that kind of kicked off our search in earnest was, um, you know, that call with you. And really, there was nothing that could could have really prepared us for what we were about to discover. I remember being contacted by you after you'd finished your research. And you said you were going to post the results on a new website, searchingforvindication.com. But you didn't tell me whether you had disproved us or not. I remember emailing you saying, I'm assuming that you've not discovered anything that would refute our findings. I actually looked up the email, and that's my exact wording. And your response was what I thought it would be. And you said, we didn't find any evidence of it happening. We didn't just find a lack of evidence. Rather, we found evidence that we believe directly contradicts what Brother Branham said about it. How much time did you spend researching the municipal bridge in an attempt to disprove our conclusion? I really don't think that we could count the hours or the time that we have in our research. You know, you hear the phrase trip to the library, and I think we automatically think of a little trip downtown. When Joe and I say we took a trip to the library, that means we took time off of work. We packed up our three children and we drove for hundreds of miles until we reached our destination. We would spend days at a time at the library from open to close scanning you know, as many documents and articles as we could. Um, while our children sat quietly by, you know, coloring and entertaining themselves uh, from open to close. Um, And it it was more than once that this is with Joe on one machine and Mia, I'm on another one. You know, more than once we ran out of time. You know, they were closing the library and we would have to come back and make another trip to finish gathering documents and making more scans. Yeah. And then, of course, after we actually completed the trips to the library, we'd come home and we'd have all this raw research. Right. And we spent hours examining all of the documents that we collected, compiling information, trying to sequence things uh, chronologically and really getting it prepared for publication. So we had a few posts ready when we started 
publishing our blog posts on searching for vindication. And we kept getting emails uh, from people trying to encourage us to uh, send things out more quickly, just, just put it all out there. And what nobody really realized at the time is that we were really laboring over every one of those posts. It was so important to us that we were factual, that we weren't offensive, that we were respectful, that we tried to keep our opinion out of it and just present the facts the way that they, they were and let the evidence speak for itself. And, you know, there's some individual posts on that website that, that we spent more than 20 hours on one post. And I just sit there and agonize over these things and proof them and read them out loud to Anna and she'd read them out loud to me and we'd go through them and, and no, let's reword this. I don't like the way, you know, it sounds like we're inserting our opinion there. We really, really labored over getting those things right and uh, trying to be as unbiased as we could. Anna, I will never forget something that you wrote, which honestly had me in tears when I read it. In fact, it's, it's probably one of the most humbling things I've ever read in my life. It basically referred to the concern that you and Joe had for Jeremy, my son, and I, who had put the posts on our website together. And you were sincerely worried that we were in spiritual danger because of the information that we had published. And your concern was one of the key motivators to go after the one, or in this case, two, and leave the 90 and nine behind. And honestly, the fact that your spiritual love and concern for two people you'd never met drove you to spend hundreds and hundreds of hours of research is, for me personally, one of the best examples of Christian love that's ever been shown to me as an individual. I've thanked you before, but I want to take the opportunity now to publicly thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of the research that you did in your care for Jeremy and myself. But in the end, you didn't prove us wrong. You actually proved our conclusions to be correct. How did you come to the decision to publish the results of your research on searching for vindication? Well, I, I really appreciate that, Rod. I, uh, sincerely, that is, um, that's how I felt. To say that we were burdened uh, is it, just an understatement. You know, we, we didn't know you or your family personally. And, you know, we did stream CBW on a, a, a biweekly basis. And, you know, the worship music from the church that played constantly in our home and in our car. We held you very much as a spiritual elder uh, with the utmost of respect. For you to step up and say the message was wrong, you were wrong, we were wrong, it, it absolutely shocked me to my core. I know that most message believers saw the Humble Pie article as quite scandalous. And I, myself, I couldn't help but view Believe the Sign with a different perspective. I saw the reputation and, and the apology, as it were, is a true heartfelt conviction and desperation for truth. And not to say that our actions were without fear, because I can't count the times somebody said to me, touch not mine anointed, do my prophets no harm. And um, there was certainly a great fear of crossing a line for most message believers. Still, I felt this responsibility that I, I just couldn't shake. And I know that, you know, the word tells us if, if we seek, we will find. If we ask, it will be given to us. And, you know, Brother Branham himself told us, you know, God would never have anything to do with a lie. And, and he said, if I've told the truth, God is obligated to vindicate that it's the truth. And so to me, it, it was black or white, really. Uh, the the answers, the truth was out there and we just had to go get it. And my simple mind, I was putting on the whole armor of God, reaching down for my five stones to face my giant and taking a giant leap of faith to rescue the lost sheep. After we uncovered all of the material we found in the course of our research, there was no question that we had to share it. it, it to us, it was simply, it was a moral obligation. 
We've obviously read and are familiar with the results of your research now, but can you share with us a little bit of how you approached that, uh, what your process was? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, we started by looking at William Branham's own accounts of what happened regarding the bridge vision. So we found all of the quotes from his sermons where he talks about the vision, right? And we also found an article on uh, uh, the Voice of Healing magazine where he tells the story in writing, right? So all these accounts were they're pretty, they're fairly consistent. And if you've studied them at all, you start to realize very quickly how important the vision is to William Branham's credibility and to his prophetic vindication. You see, he teaches that prophets are prophets from birth. And the story he's used uh, throughout the, his entire ministry really as vindication of that. And he also indicates that this prophetic gift has never been wrong. So that was our starting point was William Branham's own words. And then from there, we did a bunch of online research, right? So uh, some information is online, like the Encyclopedia of Louisville is uh, available. Some recent newspaper articles that talk about the bridge and its history are online and available. There's also some historic documents online, like the application to add the bridge to the National Register of Historic places you can google that and find it pretty easily and there's a lot that's been written over the years about louisville itself you know the great flood of 1937 and other events that kind of make up the history of the town and the bridge and so we bought books and exchanged emails with local historian the gentleman's name is rick bell he wrote a book called the great flood of 1937 and louisville's waterfront park and did a tremendous amount of research on the construction of the bridge and he told us that he had no knowledge of anything like this ever happening and then when we turned our attention to finding resources that weren't available online, right? So the, the harder or the more the meat of our research, right? So not all of the content in libraries is available online. Many of these collections are, are paper-based or microfiche, but they keep their catalogs and their indices online. So in most cases anyway. So we use those tools to try to find where we could find the physical copies of these things. And that's how we learned of the existence of the Majeski and Masters, uh, the architects, report to the Bridge Commission, as well as all the newspaper collections that we use throughout our research. So we knew that, that the books and those official records would be helpful, but they're official documents, and so they're very formal. But the local newspapers, they would have chronicled the bridge's construction and would be the source of lots of daily tidbits of information that would really help us understand the picture more completely. And if, you, uh, if you've done any studying of, of historians and how they write books about the past, that's how they do it. They go back and read these contemporary uh, commentaries on what was going on at the time. So that's what led us to the uh, Louisville Free Public Library's microfiche collection and the Indiana State Library. And let me tell you, the, the Indiana State Library, that place is a treasure trove. Uh, people in the message talk about William Branham being vindicated and how important it was to his ministry and to the message that the tape recorder was invented to record his sermons. So you hear this story and people feel very blessed about that. But you know what? What's most important for long-term truth is that he was from Indiana, a state that had a historical society and a library system dedicated to archiving all of this information. And they've had that in place since before they were even a state. So you want to talk about God providing. I mean, he he put that there uh, for people to be able to leverage later on. Right. That's that's my sincere belief. So we went to the, that state library several times. And the Clark County newspaper collection was our main area of focus, at least initially. And it didn't take us long to start finding articles about the bridge construction. Uh, it was in the paper a lot uh, leading up to its opening. As a matter of fact, on our first trip, we found the article describing Lloyd uh, McEwen's death. And that was on September 10th of 1929. And the article said that this was the second death during the construction. And of course, we knew that it opened... Uh, 
late in October. So it was very easy for us to conclude that after that first trip that there were only two people that died during the construction, especially since William Branham described this major catastrophic event. And there simply wouldn't have been time if, if that event had happened you know, between September 10th and October uh, 29th or 30th, I believe, when it opened. There just wouldn't have been time for, for them to have done the massive repairs that would have been required for that sort of thing. So that was like a really, really disheartening trip home for us. And, and the reality is that we probably could have stopped our research right there, but we felt like we had a lot more to do, that we still had a bunch of unanswered questions, and we had to be absolutely certain and make sure we had all the evidence. And so we didn't give up even after seeing that. And this was months before we really started publishing anything. You, you're talking about the two, the two deaths that you discovered. That was one of the first things that stood out to me uh, when I looked at your research was that your admission that you had found two men that had died. And that actually contradicted what well, was being said by, you know, other sites like Believe the Sign and myself were stating at the time that no one had died. That was our conclusion. The fact that you were admitting that there were deaths there, I felt it cemented your site as a resource that could be relied upon for relaying facts no matter where they led you. And I also remember just how impactful it was to be able to click on those images of the actual documents that you posted on your site timeline. There was just something surreal about staring at information on an official document that directly contradicted what William Branham had repeatedly stated as fact my whole life. Yet there's many people that claim those documents that you posted were false and that your research wasn't real. So how do you respond to those types of critiques? Well, uh, Brian, that's certainly a great question. Um, so when we decided to publish our research, it was really important to us that we presented all of the evidence as completely as possible so people could examine it themselves. And we went to great lengths to put copies of our newspaper articles, death certificates, city directory records, everything else we found. We did that because we realized how blessed we were to have the knowledge of how to find the stuff and that we had the means to go and get it. So yes, it was a sacrifice to, for us to go spend time and, and money uh, going to the library, but as time passed, we realized how much people needed to see it firsthand. So we did our best to not just share the information, but how we collected it. So knowing that our blog would be read by people internationally or those here in the States that just didn't know how all this stuff worked, we tried to document a bit of how we collected the information. So when we visited the Indiana State Library, we included pictures of the building and how things were stored in order to make it more real and credible to people. So when they saw it, that they would they'd understand that this is how things work. And we also responded to feedback from people. So no, no matter how critical it was, we tried to just reply in our comments in a loving and respectful way, trying to be sensitive to people's emotions and, and how stirred up they were by this things that were you know very difficult for them to read. There was, there was a little story here, I guess. There was this one believer in particular who was very persistent. And I think he was from the Philippines. And he was insistent that we had missed something. And he actually had figured out that there was a Coast Guard life-saving station near the bridge and that the logs from that vessel were available at the National Archives. And he was convinced, and we, we didn't know about this. We didn't know that this vessel was there. We didn't know about the logs. He found this on his own. And he was convinced that 16 men fell from the bridge in 1936 during a, some, when some dredging activity was going on on the river. And of course, the reality is, is even if that was true, it wouldn't have lined up with what William Branham said about his vision and the event. But he was certain those records he was looking for 
could be found and, and you know, that that would prove that this actually happened. So the name of the vessel was called the Louisville originally, and later it was renamed to the um, Mayor Andrew Broadus. And, you know, he appeared to be really sincere to us in trying to answer our research with credible information and concerns. And, you know, we, we went on a bit of a mission and we spoke to the archivists at the National Archives and learned uh, about the information that was in the logs, like daily weather reports, any assistance they provided, and just a ton of daily activities. And that station was located um, less than a half a mile from the bridge. So if anything happened on the bridge that required a water rescue, like 16 men falling to their deaths and drowning, it would be in the logs, right? And they had all of these logs in the National Archives from 1881 to 1941, 7 by 24 they have a log of everything that happened there. And we could get to them, but there was just a huge number of challenges for us to overcome as we looked at how we were going to do this. It was a very large collection, like I said, 1881 to 1941, 14 feet in length of, of paper. And the archives, the offices are only open during certain times. And they have very strict security and access control policies in the facility because, of course, there's not a second copy of these handwritten logs. Uh, <laughs> these are these are very sensitive things that they want to preserve. Right. And so they would only let us examine a few books at a time. And there was this very detailed and time consuming process where we'd have to check in and check out those books. And so they make sure that we returned. They've watched us while we we're using them and we had to sign off on paperwork and they had to double check that we returned everything they gave us to look at every time. And so we spent a lot of time before we went just talking to these folks about, OK, how is this going to work and what do we have to do? And we realized that there were over 8000 handwritten pages that we were going to want to f to go through. And there was no way we could sit there and examine these in person and ever have enough time to do it. And so what we ended up doing is coming up with this idea to actually go photograph them and examine the pictures offline. And that's what we did. So I needed a camera that was fast enough and that so we could kind of set it up and dial it in and just take picture after picture after picture of all of these things in about a two day visit because that's what I could could actually swing. So I bought a new camera. That's crazy. <laughs> hey, I we were serious about this. <laughs> no, I know you were. It's just crazy. Wow. This is just this is just blowing my mind. <laughs> we were, this, is, this, is, this is what we did. OK, like people don't realize how hard this was and how much effort went into it. Right. So I bought a new camera, bought a tripod, I bought lights, I bought all the stuff we needed, packed up our family and we headed to Atlanta on another trip a couple more days away from work. And the archivists were super accommodating. They, they even pre-staged all the material for us near the room where we'd be working in. And when we got there, it was very clear that they they were being very nice to us and they thought there was no way that we would possibly get through all this information in two days, but we did. So I spent uh, 16 hours over two days. I photographed two pages at a time and literally walked away with hundreds of gigabytes of image files. And I think we impressed them really because... <laughs> you certainly impressed me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were talking to us about how we were doing it and the equipment that we had brought and how it all worked. And they were sitting there watching us. And for a while I had this little audience going where there was this group of people standing there taking notes and wanted like a list of all the equipment we bought and how it works. It was really kind of fun, actually. Uh, that's not my idea of fun, Joe. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I guess everybody has their own bents, I guess. But, but the reality is we came back and then we spent dozens of hours combing through these things and we published every single page we collected in a Facebook photo album. And I knew that this guy over in the Philippines had no way to come to Atlanta. And I knew that he couldn't do what we had done, but it was important to him. And we did everything we could to get that information to him and put it out there in a way that he could examine it himself. We literally spent thousands of dollars to make that happen. 
all at his instigation because he thought he'd found something we'd missed. And he presented really what was a credible claim of a gap in our research. And if anything, the consistency that we got out of all the different documents proves their accuracy, our diligence, and the credibility of the research, right? So for example, if you look at June 19th, 1929 in those logbooks, they include documentation of providing assistance to the bridge construction crew when Richard Pilton was hit by an iron crank in the head and was he fell into the river. So the crew from the Broadus actually went and recovered his body and all of the documentation agreed. The article in the newspaper, the Coast Guard logs, everything we had collected all pointed to the same thing. And at, at the end of all that, you know, we expected that we've done a lot of good work. We've had the right attitude. We've really gone above and beyond for this guy. And... At the end of that, I got this note, and I'm going to read just a little bit of it to you. And he says, I know what kind of spirit you are searching for vindication. It is now clear to me that you don't have the spirit of revelation of which Christ Church is firmly founded upon. Thank you that this endeavors of yours have now manifest to be a failure of humanistic endeavor and become a derision in light of the plan and wisdom of God, etc. And, you know... I'm not sure that I even understood the twisted reasoning and logic that he had in this in this comment that he made to us. And it's still out on our website if you want to go read it. And, but it hurts a little bit when you go through so much effort to help people and to be factual, to be respectful. And people say we make this stuff up or make comments like that. It's just, um, you know, it's not what we're about. It's not what we're trying to do. Uh, we, we were trying to prove that we were right and, and we were wrong. And we had the integrity to stand up and, and say that. Well, I'm amazingly uh, impressed by what by the research that you did. It, it's mind boggling that anyone would take that much time. I think we should bring this episode to a close and we will continue our episode on our conversation rather on our next episode. So, Joanna, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And for all of our listeners, please come back next week for the conclusion of our discussion with Joanna Baroni, the authors of the Searching for Vindication website. If you'd like to send us an email, there's a link on the offtheshelf.life website, or you, you can email me directly at rod at offtheshelf.life, or you can reach Brian at brian with a Y at offtheshelf.life. As well, the Off the Shelf website also contains a comment section after each webcast. Just click on the title of the podcast. It'll take you to a page for that specific podcast. The comment section is at the bottom of that page. We sincerely desire that everyone has a great week. Thanks, Joe and Anna, and we'll talk to you in our next episode. Thanks, Rob. Thank you.